Welcome to the Victory Life Church podcast. We believe it's important to present an uncomplicated and uncluttered view of Christ and how we should live. We hope this podcast inspires you and helps build your faith. If you ever find yourself in the area, come check us out. For more information on services and events, visit us at blcministries.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at VLC Plantation. My name is Jacob, one of the pastors here. Can we welcome our church family tuning in online? Come on, thank you for tuning in. Welcome them. We're so glad you're here. Um, and it is good to be in the house of the Lord. If, if uh, you were joining us, this, if you joined us this past Friday for our all-teen night, I want to say thank you for joining us. We had about 65 of us here. We had fun. We played some games. And, man, it was super encouraging for me just to be around you guys. And so I thank you. If you're part of our serve team here, thank you for what you do. Thank you for how you contribute to the body of Christ. If you're wondering how you can get involved, how you can uh, use your gifts that God has given you, we do what's called a growth track every single month. And you can sign up to be a part of next month, which is August. We do it on the first Sunday and the second Sunday. And you get to discover kind of who we are and how God has, uh, what he's called us to do, Victory Life. And then, then more importantly, um, what has God called you to do? And we're not asking you to do anything for us. We're not asking you to do what we want you to do. We want you to do what God has uniquely designed you to do. And so we dive into some spiritual giftings. And so we had about eight of us this morning who were in the, the step two of our growth track and discovering their gifts. And it was just really cool, man. I'm so, I'm so blessed uh, that people are operating in their giftings. Isn't that awesome? Anybody, anybody know that that feels like to operate in the giftings that God has given you? Isn't, isn't it amazing? It's pretty cool. Hey, if you have your Bibles, we're going to go to uh, the book of... Come on, Hebrews. We've been walking through the book of Hebrews. If you just joined us this summer, and we are, uh, it's been, man, it's been really good. If I could just sum up the book of Hebrews in just a simple phrase, that is that Jesus is superior than anything and all things. This is why we worship. This is why these songs, by the way, are very strategic. And I'm sitting here in, in tears thinking about how I have access to the throne room of God because of what he's replaced, and we'll get into that. But Jesus is greater than anything and everything. And the, the, the writer starts off in, in chapter 1 talking about Jesus is greater than the prophets. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than, he's greater than Aaron. He's greater than Joshua. He's greater than the priesthood. In fact, what Jesus came to do is he became a, the source of eternal salvation for you and I. That's what he became. Incredible stuff. These were Hebrew believers who were on the fence about going back to their religion when God had called them to step into a new relationship. And so he's writing to these people. And if you recall a couple weeks ago, he realized that they were getting too lazy and they're listening. And he said, I want to dive into some of the deeper things of God, but I can't because you're not focusing with me. It's like I've been talking to you too long. You know, you talk to somebody way too long, and you're like, I know you're not listening to me right now. You're like looking through me. You have no idea what I said. What did I say? What did I say? My wife tells me that all the time. What did I just say? Uh, yeah, whatever. Whatever you said was right, dear. That's what you said. And the writer's like, you're not, you're not paying attention, so let me bring you back to some of the, uh, what the, the writer says is the milk. If you're, if you're a new believer, this is kind of the, the diet you're on is you learn the basic things of God, some of the foundational things of God, baptism, resurrection, judgment. But he, he wants to go on to the deeper things of God. And he wants to dive in to an interesting character by the name of Melchizedek. And so 
he stopped for a moment and dove into the mature and we're growing in spiritual maturity. He talked about uh, eternal security, which my dad, I thought my dad did a phenomenal job last week. If you missed last week, you need to go back and listen to that message. Incredible. And now he finally gets back to what he really wanted to talk about, which was the deeper things and an interesting character, a mysterious character. Andrew, hand me, hand me, that, hand me this book real quick. When I, was in, when I was in middle school, I had, a, I had to read. <laughs> and I, anybody like me did not like reading? I, did, I hated reading. Like, give me recess all day, but I have to read. And then um, there were really cruel teachers that made you read during the summer. You know, so I, I get out of school, and I would, you know, I, if you're a teacher here, I, no offense, but I didn't like you when you told me I had to read during the summer because I just wanted to play and run around, and you made me read, and so I had, to, I had to pick books. Now, I went to a Christian school, and so there was left-behind books. And I was like, oh, left behind, this is, this is amazing. I started reading it. Then I, in fear and trembling, I'd have dreams and nightmares at night. And so then I found this other set of books called The Hardy Boys. Oh, my goodness, blown away. The Tower Treasure, right, the, the Murder Mystery. This one is, uh, pick this one up, The Mystery of Cabin Island, about two boys, two brothers, Frank and Joe Hardy. This is written by Franklin W. Dixon. Uh, and, and they're just, there's these amateur detectives that are solving cases that nobody else could solve. Even the greats couldn't solve. And they get themselves in, you know, these places. And, I, you know, they're, they're finding this cabin. And, and they, they see footprints. And nobody should have been in this cabin for months. And they see footprints. And they're, they're dissecting this. And they're detecting this. And it's just fascinating stuff. Anybody like mysteries? Lo- love these movies. Now I watch the movies. I'm just like blown away. But here's what I've learned is that every single character in a mystery matters because you never know who the murderer is, right? It wasn't the guy who owned the hotel. It wasn't the driver of the car. It was the bellboy. And he only appeared like a couple times, right? So every character matters. Every character is important, especially in these books. No matter who they are, how insignificant they are, they play a big part of the story. Now, this is a great book. This is a greater book. Way better. And it's full of mysteries. And you discover it and you read it and you're like, that's so interesting. And there are great characters like David and Joshua and Moses and Paul and Timothy. But then there are some that are hardly mentioned that nobody really cares about. They they may seem significant. In fact, they may only be mentioned three times in the Bible. Yet they play a very crucial part of the story. To spoil it, no, they're not the murderer. That's not, we're not solving any case. We'll, We'll solve who this, and I've titled this morning's message, I took this from somebody because I thought it was interesting, the mysterious Melchizedek. The mysterious Melchizedek. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you are holy. You are set apart and you've loved us and you've called us to think about things that are much greater than ourselves. I pray over these next few moments that it would be your words that would be speaking, not mine, that what you are wanting to say would you... Would you reveal it to me clearly so that I can, so that I can share it on this, on this stage? And that everything that's said, everything that's written down, that, that we would uh, honor you and glorify you and praise you because we are your children. And if the angels do it, if creation does it, if the elders do it, then God, we have to do it. And so we thank you. We love you. Bless this time. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen, amen. So open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. And just so you know, depending on where you are at in your walk with the Lord, 
will depend on what kind of diet you have. For those of you who are doing some type of meal plan, you got to stay strict to that meal plan. For those of us that aren't on any meal plan, we could eat whatever we want. And I'm very thankful that I can eat whatever I want. But when you are a believer and you're a new believer, you start off with the basic things. But if you're a mature believer, you dive into some of the deeper things of God. And this is what the writer is explaining in chapter 5 and chapter 6. He's like, you don't understand. And so i got to bring you back to the basics so you can uh, you know, understand where, where uh, immaturity is. And then I can lead you to maturity and what you're supposed to be discovering. And so he brings up Melchizedek, and I might refer to him as Mel, by the way. Uh, so he brings up Mel and this priesthood, and this is, like the, this is for the mature believer that he's about to dive into, and the milk was for the baby believer. So what we are going to talk about today is for the mature believer. This is for those who want to grow in their faith, want to discover the deeper things of God. I would advise you to read along with me because we're going to read a lot. Take out something to take some notes with. Open up your phone and the note app on your phone and take some notes with if you want to dive deeper into the things of God. If not, uh, that's okay. You can take a nap. Uh, we have some maybe papers underneath. You can doodle like I did when I was a little kid. Uh, but this is for the deeper, uh, mature believers in the house. Where are you at in this place? If you're online, this is for you, okay? Let me give you the big picture of chapter 7. Let me kind of zoom out for a second, and then we'll, then we'll dive into it. So the priesthood was established through the Levites, the tribe of Levi. And they were to be the mediators from the wrath of God and the sin of the people. Remember, Aaron stood in the middle between the wrath of God and the sin. Of, God was like, I'm so angry at these people, I want to smite them all. And Moses and Aaron were like, God, but these are your people. And he's like, all right, then, uh, then be the middle. And, and then offer their sacrifices on their behalf to me so I don't take out my wrath. And so the priesthood was established. Um, but the priesthood had some imperfections. Uh, but again, they were chosen by God. Aaron was the, her, the first high priest. He was the one that would enter into the throne room of God, the Holy of Holies, to offer sacrifices for everybody else. And he did it once a year. Well, that was great, but I don't know about you, but I've sinned more than once a year. And so I need something a, a little bit uh, easier to get to and more accessible. And so something new came. And he came in the order of Melchizedek. And the people, you know, they've heard of that name, but interesting because they didn't really know what he was. And they were slightly confused because Jesus, if he was the great high priest, must have come from the order of Aaron. Because if you were going to be a priest, you had to be a Levite. But yet now the scripture is saying that Jesus and his priesthood came from Melchizedek. So a little confusion. Now, there, we held the Levitical priesthood with great reverence and great respect. It had its value, but the writer here is going to prove that there is a more superior priesthood. And from that superior priesthood would come something that was even greater. And by doing so, he's going to prove a few points. And he kind of breaks this chapter 7 into three segments. You've got first, it talks about Mel and Abraham. And he goes back into the things that have happened historically. And then he brings up the law and he focuses on doctrinally what takes place. And then he goes to practically with Jesus. Okay, so we've got historically, we've got doctrinally, and we've got practically. You still with me? Okay, good. But before I get to that, it's important for us to even discuss who this mysterious character is because we've seen his footprints in the snow, but we don't really know who he is. And he's mentioned in the book of Genesis, and he's mentioned once in the book of Psalms. And now we're reading about him in Hebrews chapter 7. So if I'm a detective and you're a detective, we want to de de decide who this person is and why he came here and what he is. So look at me with Hebrews verse 1, chapter 7. 
Who is this Melchizedek? Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. By the way, I'm going to try and read from my Bible, but if you notice at times what you see on the screen is a little bit different. They're from the NIV, but this is the older NIV. That's the updated one, so that's a little bit different. I know you may be asking why the Bible has been updated, but you can search on Google for yourself. So he was the king of Salem, and he was the priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings, and he blessed him. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness, and then king of Salem, which means king of peace. He was without father. He was without mother. Without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life. Like the Son of God or resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. So a couple things here before I dive into those sections. Look at his name. What does it mean? King of righteousness. But it also means king of peace. King of righteousness is obedience to God's law. Who could be king over that? What a name. King of peace. Well, what is, what is Jesus referred to in the New Testament? Prince of peace. So this man's name means ki- king of peace? What kind of, what kind of mortal man is this that we're reading? Now look at who he was. He was first the king of Salem in verse 1. And then he was the priest of God most high. So he was king of this city, state, and land of Canaan called Salem. Many would agree that this would become Jerusalem. That's interesting. I could see that, how that connects in, in the New Testament. But he was also the priest of God most high. Now we know what priests do. They're the mediators. They represent the people to God and God to the people. So he's a priest of God most high. Now that's interesting. Because we know where he's from, Canaan. If you fast forward a little bit in the Old Testament, God told Joshua and his people to go into the land of Canaan and to wipe out every single tribe, every Canaanite tribe. But yet we have one man here that we don't know at that point who is here and he hasn't died because he lives forever and he represents God and he worships the one true God. This is an interesting character, extremely mysterious. Now it's also important to note is that you could not be a king and a priest and you could not be a priest and a king. In fact, those who tried to do both were either harshly judged or they were killed. So again, I ask, who is this man? Well, how is he a man? A man has to be born from a woman. But he doesn't have a mother. He doesn't have a a father. He has no family tree. He has no genealogy. He has no beginning of days. And he has no end of life. He's always existed. Interesting. Now, if I were a detective, I'd have no idea who this man is. I give up. Anybody else give up with me? It just doesn't make sense. Now, let me dive into something uh, briefly because there's, not this, but uh, there's two two schools of thoughts here that I want to give you, and then I'll dive into more of this stuff. The first is this. Is is he a man or is um, is he a manifestation of Jesus? Perhaps you've heard of a theophany or a Christophany. In the, in, in the Old Testament, in the Bible, there were times where we would see the manifestation of God that's tangible to mankind. Remember, God saw Moses, didn't see the face, but he, or Moses saw God, but he saw the back of God. Abraham was in the presence of God along with other angels. Jacob wrestled with what he thought was a man, but the scripture says it was God. So we have these theophanies, these manifestations of God in the Bible that's tangible to mankind. But now you have a Christophany. What do you think that is? The manifestation of Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ appearing in the Bible. 
Now, is that what we're seeing? Is, is he a Christophany or a Theophany or is he just, just a man? But he has no father, he has no mother. But is he, is he Jesus? Now in verse 3, it says he's like the Son of God. So that might be a little hard to, to, uh, to prove if he was some Christophany. However, what I do know, and here's what I'll conclude with. Every time that we see perhaps a Theophany or a Christophany, every single time in the Old Testament... Where God takes on a human form, it simply foreshadows what was to come. And what was to come? His son Jesus in human flesh, Emmanuel with us. So if I'm taking notes and I'm trying to decipher who this man is, okay, so Melchizedek, he is is a real man. He's a real king. He's a real priest in a real city. He was not born. He did not die. And so in this way, we conclude that he was a picture of what was to come, Jesus our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's go to verse 1, and let's start breaking this down. And perhaps as we break this down, you might have a better idea of who he is. And you can come to your conclusion of who he is. Verse 1. King of Salem, priest of God most high. And he met with who? Abraham. Father Abraham. Remember, he's talking to the Jewish people. They know who Father Abraham is. He met with Abraham, who returned from the defeat of the kings, and he blessed them. And Abraham gave him a tenth of every thing. Now, where does he come into the scene? For that, you have to go back to Genesis chapter 14. If you got your Bibles, anybody got a Bible in hand today? Genesis 14. If you don't know where Genesis is, it's in the Old Testament, and it's the first book of the Bible. It's on page 10 in my book. Genesis 14. Let me, uh, let me set the scene for you. And by the way, I, I mean, I love the Old Testament. And I know I say this a lot, but the more I understand the Old Testament, the greater I understand Jesus. And so I'm fascinated by this. So you have a man by the name of Abraham, but Abraham's name has not yet been changed to Abraham, so his name was Abram. Abram has this whole clan, all his people, his wife Sarah, and they go to Egypt because there's a famine. You remember the story with Abram, and he's like, you know, Sarah, you're so beautiful. I don't want the, the Pharaoh to kill me and take you, so act like my sister. And so they do that. They go to Egypt. That didn't really work out, and so they leave Egypt. And now you have Abram, his wife Sarah, his clan, but you also have his nephew, his nephew's name is Lot. They get too big. The land cannot support them because Abram and all his people and all that he has is great. And Lot and all his people and all that he has is great. And so the land just does not support them. It's like me living in a 1,600 square foot with five people in my house and a dog. It was just too small for us. I'm praying that God would expand the walls <laughs> in our place. Um, but it's too big. This land does not support them. And so Abram goes one way. And it's important to know where Lot goes. He goes near a city, a great city, the scripture says, the city of Sodom. We've heard of Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah, where God would, would throw down fire onto those cities and wipe them out clean. And Lot decides to go to that great city, a sinful city. Now, he doesn't go in it, but he goes near it. Now, how many of you know if you go near sin, eventually you will be overtaken by sin? Probably wasn't a wise choice for Lot to go near the city. Now, meanwhile, there's a war going on. You've got four kings and you've got against five kings. Four verse five. Now, out of the five, one of those cities is Sodom. And Sodom, along with Gomorrah, partake in this little battle to try and take some territory during this war of four kings versus five kings. And Sodom and Gomorrah, they're overtaken. And all their people, all who are fighting for them, along with all their goods, get taken by the enemy. Now, this doesn't really matter to Abram unless it does. 
Because of the people that were taken was his nephew Lot. Now that's interesting. Because why is Lot fighting for Sodom? I thought he just lived near Sodom. No, because when you live near sin, you ultimately give into sin. And then once you've given into sin, you start fighting to remain in sin. That could be a whole sermon in itself. You've got now Lot who said, I'll just live near the city, the sinful city of Sodom. But I won't compromise my faith in what I believe. And then we find out that he's living in it. And now we find out that he's fighting for it. And so now Abram is like, now, now, now i got to step into this, to this war. And so he brings up 318 men who are trained. And he says, let's go get my nephew. And so they go. They defeat some of these kings. They take back everything that was taken from Sodom and Gomorrah, including the people, including the, the goods. And they bring them back. They've won. They're victorious. He's got his nephew back. And then two kings approach Lot. The first king is King Bera, king of Sodom. And the second one is king of Salem. Who's the king of Salem? Mel. Mel's the king of Salem. Mel's not fighting because, remember, the king of Salem means the king of peace. And so Melchizedek isn't in war, but he's in the land of Canaan. And so these two kings approach Abram, and it picks up in verse 18 of chapter 14. It says, Melchizedek, king of Salem, which again is going to be Jerusalem. I want you to notice what he brings and what they say. So Melchizedek, king of Salem, brings out bread and he brings out wine. He was priest of God most high and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then it says, and then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now the king of Sodom, Bera, he comes and he says to Abram, give me the people and keep all the goods for yourself. But Abram said to king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and I've taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or, or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say I made Abram Rich, I will accept nothing. Now, this is interesting because Abram finds victory. Melchizedek shows up and he gives him bread and wine and he blesses him. And then the king of Sodom shows up and he says, hey, thank you for getting everything back for me. All my people, all my possessions, all that you have. By the way, just give me my people and you can have everything else. Now, who was with that people? His nephew Lot. He couldn't say yes to that. But he also made a note that he wouldn't say that the enemy had ever made him wealthy. And so he looks at king of Sodom, Bera, who says, just give me all my people. And you can have everything else that you want. Meanwhile, the king of Sodom, or the king of Salem, Melchizedek, says, here, here's some bread and here's some wine. Now this is interesting. We could dive into this a little bit deeper. To bring bread... You've got, to, you've, got to, uh, you've got to beat it, and you've got to bake it. To bring wine, you've got to press it, and you've got to crush it. Now, I don't know about you, but as I look through the Bible, what else was crushed, pressed, beaten? Jesus. Now, are we seeing here something that is foreshadowing what was to come? You better, you better believe that. Are we also seeing perhaps the first communion taking place here? With Abram and Melchizedek, the first thing he does when he has victory, 
He gains all the people. He gains all the possessions back. He gains his nephew back. What does he do? He partakes in communion, and then he gives. He, he, in a sense, what's being foreshadowed is remembering what Christ did for you and for me. His body was beat. His body was bruised. His blood was poured out so that you could experience forgiveness for your sins and so that you could have freedom from death. Can I ask you what your first response is when you experience victory? When you win something, what's the first thing you do? Do you show up to the house of the Lord and you say, God, I'm so grateful. I'm so, I'm so thankful that you have spared me from this. Here's a portion back to you. Let me partake in your, in your body. Let me partake in your blood. I'm so grateful, Father, for who you are and what you've done. Do you bless him? Or do you buy into what somebody else is offering? Man, you just won all that. You just did all that. Let me, let me show you ways that you can invest it. Nothing wrong with that. But notice what Abram, Abram does first. He finds victory. He, he's weighing right now dignity and bribery. Hey, blessed are you, Abram. You serve the, the God most high. You've won, take, partaken bread and wine. And, and then you have the king who's, who's over here saying, um, you know, keep the goods, but give me my people. Do what I say and you can have whatever you want. Kind of reminds me of when Satan was tempting Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus, all these kingdoms you can have. Just worship me and bow down to me. You can have everything else. You can have it all. Abram, give me my people back and you could have everything. I will not take anything from the enemy. And this is why church is very interesting. Because you cannot be a believer, a follower of Jesus, while you are a celebrity of the world. You can't. You can't expect to be blessed by God when you have sowed all your seeds into the world. And you're sitting here crying out saying, God, where are you? I'm trying to build something for you. God would say, you're trying to build it for you. I ask you not to build your kingdom or a kingdom of this world. I ask you to build my kingdom. What kind of seeds are you sowing? Where are you sowing them? If it's not for the kingdom of God, then guess what? It doesn't matter, and it's not going to last forever. But when you're sowing seeds into the kingdom of God, when you're saying, Lord, everything that I have, I'm going to give to you. So this is, this is what Abraham is saying. He's realizing he wants to be blessed by God rather than have the um, acknowledgement of the enemy or the possessions of the enemy. He, he, he doesn't want that. He wants the blessing from God. Because you can't have what the world has to offer and what God has to offer. You have to choose. On this day, you will choose. Instead of being bribed, he tithes. By the way, this is the first mention of tithing in the Bible. Now, let's get into tithing here. Go back to Hebrews chapter 7. Because what, is, what does this have to do with the superiority of the order of Melchizedek opposed to the order of the Levitical priesthood? Look at verse 5 of chapter 7. Now, the law requires that the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a what? A tenth. That's what tithe means, a tenth. To collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they are also descended from Abraham. So under the Levitical priesthood, it was required that you had to give 10% of what you earned, whether that was money, whether that was farming, whether that was livestock. Anything you had, you had to give 10% to the storehouse, to, to the priest. You had to give 10%. It was a required payment. 
Okay, we talk about that, right? We talk about it in church. We, we talk about a tithe. It simply means a tenth. Maybe we talk about an offering. An offering would be above and beyond. So when we talk about a tithe, what we're really saying is 10% of what you have, you give back to God. But it's really understanding that 100% is already his. And I'm just a steward of it. So it's not like I've made all this money. It's mine. And God only asks for 10%. This is crazy. No, all of it is God's. He gives you 100% and he only asks for 10% back. So I wouldn't have had the 100% in the first place if it wasn't from God. So God has given me all that I have, and now 10%, he's only asking for that back. Man, that's a great, God, are you losing out on this deal? No, you know what you're saying is that God can do a way better job at handling 10% of your money than you can with 100% of it. That's what that means. Okay, so uh, that makes sense because uh, Abram is giving 10% to a priest Because that's required in the Levitical law because Moses established that. The problem is that Moses wasn't even born yet. Remember the tribe of Levi? That would be his great-grandson, Abram. So then why is he giving 10%? If it wasn't a required payment, why is he giving to this? Well, look at verse 6. This man in, in Hebrews 7, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abram. And blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser, Abram, is blessed by the greater, Melchizedek. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die. But in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. So let me ask you, which is greater? The payment made to Melchizedek? Or the required payment made to the priesthood? That, by the way, would not live forever. Well, the answer is is the first. Giving to Melchizedek. So clearly what Abram is seeing is there is an authority over his life. And there would be an authority over that which would be established later on in the law. And so now it's not so much giving because there is a required payment. It's giving because there's an acknowledgement. Acknowledging who God is. What he's done for you. God, the only thing I can do is give you back what you've already given to me. I would not not have had this if it wasn't for you. God, I would not have gotten this house. I wouldn't have gotten this business. I wouldn't have these kids if it wasn't for you. And so instead of being selfish and saying, it's all mine, it's all mine. The enemy said, it's mine. Instead of listening to that voice, who did he listen to? The voice of God through Melchizedek, who said, blessed be you, Abraham. And Abraham said, here's a tenth of all that I have. God, I I thank you. God, I trust you. God, I believe that you can manage the 10% of my money greater than I can manage the 100% of my money. Can I ask you, church, have you discovered this art of giving? Because that's really an act of worship. It's an act of worship. I mean, it's saying, God, everything I have is, is already yours. I'm just a steward of it. From my finances, to my home, to my vehicles, to my job security, to my kids. Even, even with their salvation, God, I'm the steward of it. i got to do my best with it. i got to do my best, and I have, to, I have to give my best. Because Abram loved God, because he honored God, because he acknowledged his goodness and his greatness. He didn't want to give it to something that would eventually die, but he wanted to give it to somebody that would live forever. Can I tell you, church, when you give to the kingdom of God, the seeds that you sow are eternal. They're eternal. 
You know, when we did vacation Bible school, we had a bunch of kids come and receive Christ, and a few of them were like teenagers, and one of them was a girl named Sophie who got saved. We put a lot of money into this for that exact reason, the difference that you were going to make in one person's life. We're talking about things that matter eternally, not temporarily. God, I want to sow a seed that's going to last forever, not just for a moment. Lord, would you show me where I can sow those seeds? Will you show me where I can sow, God, the money that is already yours? I don't want to give just to give. And I'm certainly not giving because it pays. I'm giving because I acknowledge who you are. I acknowledge your goodness. I acknowledge your greatness. I acknowledge that everything I have, I would not have if it was not for you. And so I, so I give. I give back to you, God. I'm so grateful that I can give. Man, I'm so blessed. Every time I get a paycheck, I take it and I say, I know 10%. And that's a start, by the way. I know if you read in the New Testament, is that required? Are we still under the Levitical law? No, we are not. But the New Testament clearly talks about a generous giver. God loves a cheerful giver. So start somewhere. If you're not giving today, would you just pray? Lord, put in my heart. Start somewhere. Pick a percentage. Pick 5%, 7%. Start somewhere. Give somewhere and watch what God does in your life. The scripture says, test, test me on this, is what God says. Now, let me move on to the second portion, verse 11. This is where we get into doctrinally. He's already proved that Abram, before the law was even established, gave to something that was even greater than that, more superior than that priesthood, which did not last forever. But let, let, let me tell you why, and let me point to the law, because... The Hebrew people knew the law very well. Look at verse 11. He said, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the law was given to the people, then why was there still a need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. So now, now we're talking about Jesus, the great high priest. I know you thought that Jesus was going to come from the order of Aaron, but he actually came through the order of Melchizedek. But I know Melchizedek wasn't a Levite. And I know you're like, well, that doesn't really make sense because he had to come through the Levitical priesthood. But I'm here to tell you that this priesthood is better and it's necessary because the first one could not give you what you needed. It could not offer perfection. It was, it was necessary for a sinful man to experience what would eventually be brought forth. And they at once did it through an imperfect order. So there had to be a change. Look at verse 12. For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. He of whom these things are said belong to a different tribe. And no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. That was clear. If you tried to, you would, you would be dead or you were harshly judged. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear. If another priest, like Melchizedek, appears, one who has become a priest, not on the basis of regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. In other words, Jesus' priesthood is not based upon a priesthood that it would eventually die, but a priesthood that would last forever because it was through the power of God's indestructible and endless life. And now he quotes what David said in, in Psalm 110, 
If you look in verse 17 of chapter, chapter 7 of Hebrews, he says, For it is declared that you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it's weak and it's useless. Useless in the way that it didn't make anything perfect. It wasn't useless and that it didn't matter at that time. It was essential at that time. But now it has become useless because that which was essential at the time isn't essential for eternity. But that which is essential for eternity is here through the order of Melchizedek. Verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. There's a lot here. So the order in which Jesus comes through is greater than Aaron's. But the writer takes it a step further to say that this order is replacing Aaron. Now, why would God replace that which he established then and there? Remember, everything in the Old Testament was here preparing the people for what was to come. Anything but Jesus would not work because Jesus was the only thing that was going to bring what could last forever. The priesthood had its value. The law did its work at one point, but the problem was that they were imperfect. The law and the priest could not bring the completion of the work of God in people's lives. They couldn't do that. Every time they messed up, they had to go to the altar. They had to sacrifice an animal, and they did it once a year through the Day of Atonement, through the high priest, every single time, every single time. It was pointing to something that would happen once and once for all, but it was essential then. The law was not meant to last forever. It had its function, but its weakness was it could not give what was necessary for you and I to spend eternity with Christ forever. Now, let me pause here and remind you of who this person is talking to. Many would assume the writer is Paul. We don't know that, but looking by the characteristics and the personality of Hebrews, maybe it's safe to say it was Paul, but we don't know that. It was the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit, speaking to Hebrew believers who had left Judaism, and they have stepped into this relationship with the Messiah. They've left the traditions, the sacrifices that didn't mean they were worthless. They had its time, and now they've stepped into this Messiah. But they're experiencing persecution. And now they're scratching their heads saying, it was safer over there. It was comfortable over there. Because as soon as I step out and do the things for God, it gets challenging, right? It gets frustrating. Man, I start getting people who don't like me, people who don't want me. Man, I've been fired from my, from my job. Because I'm a believer. I've been kicked out of places because I'm a believer. God, I wasn't kicked out of anywhere before. In fact, the law over here got, got nice and tight and close with, with some of the citizens and the, and the governing people. But then now when I've stepped into to being a Christian, it's like they want to kill me now. And by the way, the, temp, the, the, the temple and stuff, it's, it's over there. They can see it. The priests are still operating. And the writer is like, that was essential for a time, but that could not give you what you needed. Jesus is the only one that can give you what you need because Jesus accomplished something that the law never could accomplish. Never. In fact, can I tell you what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3? Would you flip there with me for a second? Just go back a little bit. Galatians chapter 3. Verse 19. He says, what then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions, because of the wrath of God and the sin of the people. God had to pour out his wrath. He had to pour out his judgment. And everybody was sinning. They were spitting in the face of God. God had spared them. He saved them. And then all of a sudden they were building idols because they wanted to worship an idol. Forget you, God. 
And God's like, I'll smite you. And he did. Time and time again, he had to judge us. It was better for them to die than for them to continue to live in sin. But again, Moses and Aaron were like, God, don't kill all your people. And so the priesthood was established. This was, this was the law. It was added because of transgressions until the, what? The seed. And I don't know about you, but my Bible has that word capitalized. I wonder who that seed would be. To whom the promises referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Verse 21. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. If the law could do what the people needed then and there, then we wouldn't need any changes or anything else because that would have been sufficient for giving life which was necessary for people. But the scripture says that the law could not give that. Verse 22. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. So that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who what? Believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law. Many of you were held prisoners by sin. But then in here, they were, a lot of them were held by prisoners of the law. This is what I got to do. This is what I got to say. This is what I can't eat. This is how I have to act. This is how I must perform. It's a a lot of of rituals, a lot of cleansing. And the scripture said you were locked up by that. You were prisoners until faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Can we just thank Jesus right now? Can we give him some praise for who he is, what he's done? I thank God that I can approach the throne room of God. It doesn't matter what moment, it doesn't matter what day, I have access to the throne room of God. It's shifting, church, listen, it's shifting our perspective from the cleansing to the cleanser. It's shifting our perspective from the doing to the one who did. It's shifting our perspective from performing to the one who performed. Stop working and working and working and start fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. He has saved you. He has cleansed you. Man, but, no, but my church and my pastor, I got to keep doing, I got to keep doing, I got to keep doing, I got to confess, I got to keep praying, I got to just, it's just tiring. That's exhausting. Miserable. Fix your eyes on fix your eyes on Jesus. Just preach me that. Come on, I want to see God. I want to experience God. Fix your eyes on that, and everything else about you, by the way, will change. And so the law was all about doing. It was all about fixing. And now we have access to God. We could approach the throne room of God, not through anybody, any priest, any law, any ritual. But through Jesus, and this hope, the scripture says, is better. This assurance is better. And by the way, anybody that tries to tell you that we have to um, revitalize that priesthood, we have to uh, go back to those sacrifices, they are denying the superiority of Jesus and what he did, and they deny the sacrifice on that cross. So now he continues to go, and I'm going to go in verse 23. He continues on. That was doctrinally why it was necessary 
for us to establish something new. Now, let me tell you what it goes on to say in verse 23. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing office. But because Jesus lives what? Forever. He has a what? Permanent priesthood. It made sense. When a priest would die, they'd have another one come in. That priest would die, they'd have another one come in. Are you thankful that your relationship with God isn't based upon a pastor? Because some of you have gone through several different pastors. And if, that, if your relationship with God was dependent on them being steadfast, never failing, always serving until the day that they die or they die after you die, I mean, that, could you imagine how much would be changing in your life if you based your relationship with God off a, an individual? But it says, the scripture says that Jesus' priesthood is unchanging. And because his priesthood is unchanging, then you have a lasting salvation. Because it's unchanging. God is unchanging. He's always the same. He's the same yesterday. He's the same today. And he is the same tomorrow. Anybody thankful for that? And so because of that, my salvation is lasting. That's what the scripture says. Look at verse 26. Such a high priest meets our needs, one who is holy, one who is blameless, one who is pure. He's set apart from sinners. He's exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. But what he sacrificed for their sins, he did it once and for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priest men who are weak. But the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Forever. You know, when you had to sacrifice an animal, you, you would have to you know, drag an animal to the altar. You had to kill it, burn it, and offer it for your forgiveness. And everybody around was very thankful for that animal. And I thank God for the animal. I thank God for that animal who is being killed on behalf of my sins and my transgressions. But they're also glad that that wasn't them. Thank God I'm not the one being dragged over and being slaughtered for my sins. Because we'd all be there. But what happens if, as you drag that, all, that sacrifice, you realize that you're actually dragging yourself? You see, Jesus didn't come just to be the great high priest, but he came to be the sacrifice. Jesus would be the priest who would sacrifice himself. That's the Jesus that people need to hear about. That's the Jesus that people need to know about. As long as heaven and hell are reality, church, they need to know about not just the great high priest who came in the order of Melchizedek, but the sacrifice once and for all. He didn't need to do it again. You don't need to do it. He did it for you. You had a punishment. The scripture is very clear about that. And I made a lot of mistakes. Because I made a lot of mistakes, there is a consequence for my sin. But Jesus died on a cross on behalf of your sin. You didn't, have to, you didn't have to die and spend eternity in hell. It's like, why don't people know about this? Oh, because we're not saying anything about it. Because we'd rather just gather everybody in this room and sing kumbaya and, and you know, talk about how good we are and how great we are and how much we've tithed and how much I've given. Look how many things I've done for the kingdom of God. And that's great, by the way. Those are things we should, we should celebrate. 
acknowledged. What you gave helped save people on vacation Bible school that Friday night. But what about the people out there in your neighborhood, in your home, who if they died tomorrow, you knew they were going to hell. You know for a fact they would die and they would go to hell. Why aren't you sharing about this Jesus? If there's anything that we've represented so well, if there's anything that my dad has represented so well, it's that would you live in such a way that people would notice by how you talk, by how you walk, by how you look, by how you manage, by how you treat other people, that Jesus lives within you and they should be compelled to ask you, what's so different about you? What's so different about you? You know, I, I love pastoring and I love doing this and this is great. I, th- I feel like I get to help speak into people spiritually and, and I have pastors in my life that speak into me spiritually, but I love giving blood. I love it. I've been doing it since I was 16 years old just to get out of class. I'd go to the big blood bus and, you know, they'd, they'd stick me and I'd give blood. I'd pump this thing and I'd get free pizza. I'd get movies. Oh, it's incredible. Now they stop giving movie tickets out. So, uh, you know, I'm like, why do I, why do I, give? but I give because I love it. I feel like for me, it's like, man, I get to help people physically who need blood. And so I went a couple days ago and I get into the, the one blood. I didn't go to the bus, but I went into the place over here on in plantation and, and I'm sitting there and I'm waiting on them to, to, to prick me and this, this sweet lady, Jamaican lady named Georgette, she's talking to this man who's there. This man is sitting next to me. He's like, every two weeks, like, every two weeks I come here. I gotta pump me out and pump me back in. I'm like, sir, you got an issue. <laughs> you can't come every two weeks. He's like, no, I do have an issue. I have a disease. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Um, but he's doing his thing and he's like, every two weeks I gotta show up. And I'm like, that's kinda like, and I speak out loud. I'm like, that's kinda like going to church every week for some people. And they laughed and they said, that's funny. Yeah, that's right. You know, every time somebody gotta come to church every single Sunday, they gotta confess, they gotta receive every week. They just kinda, it's like a cycle we do every single week. And then I was like, and I'm there five days a week. And then uh, the, the Jamaican lady, she's like, what do I mean? So she said, she's like, you, you a minister. And I'm like, oh, man, I blew my cover. Dang it. And she hasn't even pricked me yet. And I don't know if she likes ministers or pastors, but she's going to draw blood from my arms. She might draw too much and I could die. Why did I say I was a pastor, God? Um, but come to find out she's a believer as well. We start talking. And then I, the, that guy leaves, and it's just me and this other lady that's there. And they're, they're taking blood out of my arm, and we're sitting there talking. And we get into this discussion about sin. And she was like, man, I just... I just, I, I hate that we have to live around all this sin. And I'm like, I hate it too. And she's like, and then I hate that I sin all the time. And I'm like, me too. And she's like, wait, you sin all the time? And I'm like, I mean, sometimes, you know. Uh, but it's, that's the truth. She's like, man, I feel like I sin every single day, every single hour. And I was like, yeah, but listen, can I tell you a couple things? One, every time you sin, Jesus will forgive you every single time. Two, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So stop living in shame. I'm like talking to two different ladies. I'm, my blood's getting taken out. I'm getting kind of like, you know, uh, like about to pass out. I was here talking about God. It was really cool. And, but then we kind of we changed directions. And, and I was talking about the throne room of God and how we can approach the throne room of God with boldness. And we don't have to be afraid. However, and this is when I... I didn't justify sin in hourly or sin in daily or sin in weekly. We know we're going to do that because we're sinful people. We're surrounded by sin. However, when I approach the throne room of God and I understand more of who Jesus is and I receive more of his grace and his mercy, I actually start to sin less. And so 
don't sit there and justify, I sin every day, but God forgives me. At some point, I wonder if we could say, I don't sin every day. In fact, I pursue righteousness every day of my life. That's what I pursue. I'm going to stop talking about, man, I live in sin, and I keep sinning, and I keep messing up. No, what I'm going to start saying is that I pursue righteousness every day. And the more I pursue righteousness every single day, the more I avoid sin. You want to avoid sin? Then pursue righteousness. You want to avoid sin? Well, don't camp out near sin, because if you camp out near sin, then you're, then you're going to get involved in sin, and then you're going to start fighting not just for that sin, but to remain in that sin, similar to Lot. But thank God somebody shows up like Abram, and he saves you from that sin. Some of you can go back 30 years ago and say, I remember that moment when God saved me and he spared me. I'm so thankful for that moment. I was Lot. Was anybody Lot in this room? Anybody Lot online? You were Lot? You got tangled up in sin. You didn't, you didn't want to, but you did. And then you found yourself way too deep in it where you camped out. You built a house on it. And now people are starting to accuse you of walking away from the Lord. And you're like, no, I'm, I'm here and I'm fighting to stay here. Now you become so hardened and so jaded. And then you love it. And then you want to stay. But yet, Abram frees his nephew Lot. Now, you know, Lot eventually goes back. And his family's back there. And then Sodom and Gomorrah happens and, and Lot's spared. But his wife is like, his wife's now looking back at sin. And then she dies because she looks back at it. Because it's just, a, man, it just wraps you, tangles you. And you have not found freedom because you have not been freed from it. God says, I want to save you and I want to free you from that. But just know that you can approach the throne room of God at any point, at any day. The veil has been torn. The veil, church, has been torn. You have access to God. And I wonder what it would look like today if you, start, if you started walking in that acknowledgement of who God is, that he fights for you, he speaks on your behalf. I wonder what it would look like if we as a church were people who said, you know what, I'm gonna pursue righteousness more than I, than I avoid sin. Because I can, man, I, it's a, it, is, it is so tiring trying to avoid sin every single day. It's like I have to walk around like this. Can't do that, can't see that, can't look at that. But I'm at the mall and everything at the mall, I'm at the store, I'm at the beach, my goodness. I can't avoid it, it's everywhere, what do I do? Well, here's what you do. You don't pick your eyes out, but you fix your eyes on Jesus. And sin didn't phase me anymore. I could walk around the mall and go to the beach, man, that doesn't, that doesn't mess with me anymore because I know who I am and I know who I am in Christ. Anybody know who they are in Christ? Would you stand to your feet all across this room? I'm very thankful for you sitting under this, listening a little bit. That For me, this was a, a, uh, just a deep dive into understanding that Christ came not in the order of the priesthood because that priesthood could not fulfill and give you what you needed, but he came in the order of Melchizedek, which would give you what you needed, and that was life. That's what the scripture said, life. Life to the fullest. Life eternally. That if you die today, no matter where you are, no matter what you've done, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you have eternity in heaven. Come on, if you're thankful for that, would you just lift up your hands across this room? Lord, the veil was torn. We can approach the throne room of God. Thank you, Father. Would you just worship Him? Maybe in your own words, just worship Him. Take a moment. You need to kneel. Worship him. You need to come to the front. Just worship him. The team's going to lead us. 
God, the doors have been flung open wide. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. If this has blessed you, would you consider giving a financial gift to help bring this message to more people? You can do that at vlcministries.com slash give. You can also subscribe, rate, and share this podcast with your friends and family. Here's what we believe. Living God's way everywhere, every way, every day. We love you and God bless.